every hiding spirit, we expose you. We expose you in Jesus' name. We expose you in Jesus' name. The Supernatural Life, a ministry overseen by Daniel Adams, held its first annual Forerunner Conference with a vast lineup of ministers on November 18th through 20th of this year. Among those who spoke were professing deliverance ministers, such as Isaiah Saldivar, Alexander Pagani, Mike Signorelli, Vlad Savchuk, John Ramirez, Marcus Rogers, and Jenny Weaver. I gotta prophesy. There's a group of people that are just like that remnant from 2,000 years ago that are attending these dry churches that are, have maybe even left them all together and they've got a yashana in their spirit and they're rising up and declaring it's a holy yashana. It's a deliverance now, but I, listen to this. It, yashana in the Hebrew, in the original context, means to be saved, to be free, avenging, defending, delivering. Do you need a defender because yashana is your defender now? I have come to declare to 5,000 sold out spiritual gangsters, spiritual snipers, spiritual warriors that America is too young to die. America will not die on my watch. God has a secret weapon in his back pocket and it's called the remnant. I'm talking about a group of people that say we're not going to ask permission. We're not going to apologize. We are not going to be ashamed because deliverance is the children's bread. All I needed was a crumb. Some of you are in dead, lukewarm religious churches, and your pastor won't even give you a crumb. 52 sermons a year, and he hasn't spent one week preaching on the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of deliverance. Let me tell you something that we can stand on that these religious yo-yo lukewarm pastors, soft pastors, can't stand on. We could stand on the word of God. Our authority is not in our name. Our authority in his name. It's in the name of Jesus that every demon trembles. It's not in my name. It's in in his name. My authority does not come from a denomination. My authority does not come from what I think. My authority comes from the name of Jesus. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow. I want to activate you all right now. Every last one of you. Here's what I want you to do. Now, unless you're just some filthy sinner or you're a witch, don't put your hand on nobody. I just play it. Well, no, I'm not. If you're a witch, don't touch nobody. Or the Holy Ghost will burn you up. Turned a little bit of ash. I'm just playing. But repent if you're a witch. Amen. I want you to touch your neighbor's shoulder. I want to show y'all something. If you feel safe doing it, and I believe it's a safe place. I've been around everybody almost. So. Say, Holy Spirit, we've come to the end of the conference. But it's the beginning of the first day of the rest of our life. So, Jesus, change everything. And I ask you right now. To activate me in the things, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I ask you right now, Holy Spirit, to flow through my body 
and touch my neighbor now. In Jesus' name. Along with the worship and the ministering that went on, Daniel Adams also received a prophetic word on the last day of the conference from a man some may be familiar with named Leon Dupree. And here is a small clip from that prophetic word that I found quite interesting. Brother Lord is saying, this day is a mark and a moment in history. You would think, but this is a meeting. They will point back and say, but this is where a dispensation, a change into deliverance has shifted the body of Christ. You would have never thought, you would have never imagined what I'm about to do, says the Lord. For they shall say, look, it is like the Jesus movement. They shall say, look, it is like Lonnie Frisbee. And I shall say, no, it is Daniel Adams, says the Spirit of the Lord. And he shall not go into the things of the past. He shall not make the mistake that generals have made. Because I will give him a humility to be surrounded by those who can keep him accountable. For the Lord said, you have cried out and you said, I want to become like generals. The Lord is saying, I'll make you so much more, son. There was also a time of giving that I honestly found to be quite upsetting. I heard him say that someone would be here that would cover the meeting for this time. He said this person would write a, a check for $100,000. I said, oh, I'm scared. They've been got me. In. But I'm not afraid to ask because there's a person that God told to cover the meeting. The person that's supposed to do it is here, and I know it. We're going to move on, but by the time that person is, is ready, but ladies and gentlemen, here's what's important. How many want to make this meeting and cover this meeting before we get to the next one? How many would do that if you knew God was directing you? What if God just simply asked, there's a few people that should give at least $10,000, and I know it. And if God speaks to you and say, you're the, one of those people that should give 10, I want you to begin to stand. And don't make me, don't, don't, don't push me. Don't make me look like I'm, I know what I heard. And so if you were to give 10,000, you have heard the voice of God. Where are you? And they, what's so unique is some of you are part of the team. We need 10 of them because we're going to pay for the building before we get there. Y'all ain't crazy enough. We're literally going to get the meeting taken care of before the next meeting. And the meeting will be bigger three times this, four times this. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to, for the move of God. It's going to happen so fast. It's going to make your God say he's going to multiply you. We need 10 people just like her. If you say you'll give it when you get, if you say that you'll commit to it, you don't have to give it today. You come now. I need nine more people that say they will do it. Clap your hands and pray God praise. It will be a hundred. Apache Kotaba, Rondeo, Suko, Shapa. Begin to run. Rush, 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 rush. Hallelujah. If you're not going to give it today, you just give the assignment and tell them when you're going to give it. I need eight more people. I need a praiser in the room. I need a praiser. I need a praiser to break the yoke of the enemy off of people's money. In the name of Jesus, come, come, families, come. Rush, rush. God told you, you're in a hurry. Come on, I need you to come and come now. There's eight more. I, I promise you, if I be a prophet, I promise you, if I be a prophetess, I promise you, if I be God's anointed, God's going to do what he said he's going to do. I decree, I decree it, I decree it in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Break, 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 break. All we need, what? 
You getting ready? You getting ready to be left out? You better rush. You getting ready to be left out? You getting ready to be left out? You getting ready to be left out? And if we dare get 11, we're going to have to go all the way to 20. By the way, they did go past that up to 20. And then she went on to tell people there were a thousand people in the room that needed to give $100 and they needed to stand up. And then the rest of the people that were going to give 5 or $10, they need to stand up too because they were also part of the kingdom of God. This event boasted of 5,000 attendees. And in case you're wondering, there was a registration fee when you looked it up online and that was $75 per person. So you do the math on that. The gatherings were posted online and averaged about six hours each day with different individuals bringing a word along with worship and what can only be described in what we just heard as pandemonium in the initial clips of this episode during what was called mass deliverance. There is much that could be covered here in this conference, but today's episode will be looking at a recent episode from the Demon Slayer podcast where several of these same individuals came together to discuss the aftermath of the conference and to answer questions about deliverance. I hope you find this episode helpful today as we take a look at some of these clips and we test what is being taught and stated against scripture. Thanks for joining me on this 100th episode of the Love Sick Scribe podcast. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. Have you ever heard the phrase, deliverance is the children's bread? If you have, then you've probably been in these types of circles and these beliefs where people talk about and reference the account in Matthew and in Mark, which we'll look at today, about the Canaanite woman who had a demon-oppressed or possessed daughter and approaches Jesus about wanting her daughter healed. And what is said to her in talking about the the children's bread and ultimately her daughter uh, receives healing from this this oppression from this demon. And when people talk about this and they, they say this phrase, deliverance is the children's bread, it's usually in reference to deliverance ministry and talking about that Christians are the ones that need to have deliverance ministry done to them because you don't do deliverance on unbelievers. The bread that is given is for believers only. And so this is one of the, the beliefs of deliverance ministry is that deliverance is only done on born-again believers. I've also heard this phrase in the years past when um, I was under Word of Faith teachings initially and as it evolved into the New Apostolic Reformation. But Hagen was also um, noted for saying this and writing a book, but he said healing is the children's bread. And he wrote about that aspect of it. But that phrase is not in Scripture. That verbatim, when you look that up, it's not in Scripture. But people have inferred that from that those accounts in Matthew and Mark. And so the reason why I want to talk about this today is because the recent Demon Slayer podcast was titled this, and it also declared that the deliverance era has begun. So let's look at some things said during this three-hour-long live broadcast featuring eight deliverance ministers, including Isaiah Saldivar, Alexander Pagani, Mike Signorelli, Vlad Savchuk, Daniel Adams, and Jenny Weaver. The recent TSNL, or Supernatural Life, conference was said to have been a historic event for deliverance. 
We all just got back from a deliverance conference that Daniel Adams was a forerunners conference, but it was really turned into a deliverance conference that Daniel Adams put on. I just wanted to touch on this, and then Daniel, you can kind of tell us the heart of the event, how it started, and we could all maybe give an experience or what we thought about the event. In my opinion, I think we'd all agree it was a historic event for deliverance ministry. We were talking about how in the last 10 or 15 years, we can't think of an event where 5,000 people came in person to come experience the powerful, tangible presence of God. And what I told Daniel was for so many years, deliverance has been this fringe movement that like the church and pastors have said, oh, you guys are like this small, weird group that we kind of put in a back room. But I believe that deliverance is coming out of the closet in America. I believe that deliverance is the children's bread, that the things that Jesus did are starting to happen again. And this is what it all boils down to. People deserve to be free. People yeah, deserve is like in Luke 13 where Jesus said, Didn't, doesn't she deserve to be loosed? Like the religious people were mad about it, but the people mm-hmm. deserved it. Do you catch that, that, that we are in the era of deliverance, that children, that deliverance is the children's bread. This is why I wanted to talk about this today and that people deserve to be free, that this was a historic event and it's being treated as if deliverance is on the fringe in this movement. It is not on the fringe in this movement. This has been around for a long time. It's been around for decades and it's quite popular, been growing for a long time. And I honestly attribute it also to the fact that people are curious. People are hungry for the supernatural, even if, if it's a cult or whatever it is on the opposite side of the fence. When you talk about people that go to psychics and such, it's the same thing in this. So people get hypersensitized to this. They get stimulated spiritually, so to speak, and physically and everything seeing this take place. They want to see demons manifest. They want to see something supernatural happen that's beyond their comprehension. So this is not fringe. I'm just I would disagree with him on that. And as we go on, uh, Daniel Adams said it, it was beautiful in this conference to see people embrace deliverance and unity and that deaf ears were open, that people were getting out of wheelchairs and that he's, and he says the full gospel was on display. Now this is something that you will hear these deliverance ministers say, they believe that in order for it to be the full gospel, you must be casting out demons. And they base this on what Jesus did. So they, Isaiah will tell you this. He'll say, if you go to the seven instances in scripture where Jesus is casting out demons, that this is the model that we are to follow. And they will say, if you are not casting out demons, you are not ministering the full gospel. And I have something to say about that at the end. Now, I want to touch on some of the things that were also said during this entire three-hour-long Zoom call or whatever they were doing, this live broadcast where people were watching. Jenny Weaver actually mentioned that pastors need to get on board with deliverance or they are going to be left behind. Vlad Savchuk made the comment that there's the Jehu anointing that's rising up. That's not the first time any of us have heard that. People want to reference Jehu and how he had dealt with uh, Jezebel, but we're not called to be like Jehu. We're called to be like Christ. So he references the Jehu anointing rising up and that Jehu was wild and that they want this type of anointing embraced across the board. And he also made a reference that during this conference that God's kingdom was established. It's an an interesting thought. And Daniel Adams made a note of the video of kids casting demons out of each other in the kids ministry area. Isaiah Saldivar shared a testimony of an individual who got delivered after being ministered to in a virtual room game. And that was aside from the conference. But this person 
attended the conference and got to talk to them. And he and this individual now says that they are going into the metaverse and into the virtual rooms and ministering the gospel and delivering people from demons in the metaverse and the virtual rooms. Another thing too that I wanted to mention, we'll get to the Q&As in a minute, but I thought this was an interesting comment. Jenny Weaver said about the hour and 15 minute mark in discussing spouses in ministry and how their spouses uh, dealt with them being in deliverance ministry. She talked about doing deliverance maintenance twice a year for her and her husband and that they just go and, and do deliverance maintenance to make sure that there's no demons that need to be cast out. Now, taking some of these things in consideration before we move on to the question and answer portion of this podcast that they had, one thought that occurred to me when they, when, you know, when deliverance ministers in general are talking about that deliverance is the children's bread and that uh, Christians can have indwelling demons, and that deliverance is only for born-again believers. The thought did occur to me, why are born-again believers being referred to as captives? Because we're not, if you look at Scripture, and so we'll get there. About 21 minutes into this podcast, Mike Signorelli discussed a demonized boy shouting at his mom during the conference and what was said to this mother, allegedly by the demon. It was wild what they were doing. That's incredible. You know, I want to say, and I want to give you honor for setting everything up the way that you did, because I, I witnessed that. And one of the most powerful moments of the conference for me personally was, um, you know, you guys had a cover. I think Rickard was on stage going absolutely buck wild, crazy, mass deliverance, demons coming, coming out everywhere. And so then I see, you know, Pastor Vlad's casting out demons. So I thought to myself, the whole front's covered and they're like air raiding this place from the... <laughs> From the mic. So I'm going to go disperse into the crowd. And I stumbled upon this eight-year-old boy. I mean, who was fully demonized. And it wasn't psychosomatic. It wasn't something that he was just emulating because he saw it in the room. I mean, it was a legitimate, he needed deliverance. And these demons were shouting at his mom, we're coming for you next. We're coming for you next. Wow. And so then I walk up and everyone's like, it's Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, take over. I'm like, oh, here we go, Lord. I'm doing this in front of a live audience. But, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was a difficult deliverance and there was a lot there. But there came this moment where I brought the boy back and I said, where's your dad? And he said, my dad's in prison. Wow. And I turned to the mom and I said, is that true? Is your dad in prison? And or is his dad in prison? And she said, yes. And I just started dealing with that orphan spirit. And as soon as that broke, this little eight-year-old boy, he just hunched over and started to cough. And then he started vomiting. And then everything, I mean, every spirit came out. And then he came back up and immediately said, I feel so good. I feel so much better. The whole place erupted. And it was just such a powerful moment. And so seeing every generation get free, even as a pastor, and I want to speak prophetically, as a pastor, it's like, the movement that because we're in that era we are in the deliverance revival era we're in the deliverance church era i mean it happened from the conference till now it redefines kids kids ministry now come on it redefines youth ministry and so i I believe within the next 18 months much of what we've had in america for the last several years will be completely irrelevant and it's Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily pentecostals or charismatics that are driving this it's it's people who are bound and they're in captivity saying we want freedom we're driving come on, this come on so after discussing post conference they then moved on to the Q&A and how they got into such things as deliverance ministry and the effects on their marriage as i mentioned a minute ago with Jenny's comment which i'm not going to get into that it took up a lot of time with that 
Someone asked why demons manifest more than other demons. Now, here is a hodgepodge of some of the answers that were given from the various deliverance ministers that were on this panel. One said that it was, there was not a formula for every demon, that you don't put demons or deliverance in a box. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and it might, because some of us have heard that when we question or challenge some of these practices that are going on or the prophetic movement, and the initial response that we get is, don't put God in a box. So now people are putting demons or deliverance ministry in a box. Some have stronger holds than others. Um, Another person said that there's no manifestations that are necessarily needed, which is interesting because a lot of times they'll get people to, they'll say up and out, it's coming up. You're going to cough. You're going to have this happen. You're going to have a headache. You're going to have all these manifestations happen. Um, So many demons are present today, just like there are so many people. So there's a vast number. That's why they say that that's another reason why that some may manifest more than others. They talked about the misdiagnosis of demons versus other issues, such as chemical imbalances or mental, um, emotional issues and such, and that you are to depend on the Holy Spirit. And deliverance requires relationship with the deliverer and being in a seat of authority. Another one of the individuals says the strongest demons hide the best. So that was some of the responses we got. Now, I want you to notice something here, and I noticed this when I was watching it. I noticed that there was a vast amount of appeal. Very little scripture was referenced. There was no expositing of the scriptures, no biblical understanding of what different passages meant. This was all based on their personal experience, on personal opinion, and not on what scripture had to say which it it was just very interesting to me because of some of the things that were said that we'll get to here in just a little bit. The next thing I want to talk about was the question addressed to them stating, where do you send demons after you cast them out? Now, Jenny immediately started responding to this. And so I want to share a little bit of this clip and talk a little bit more about it. And from a biblical standpoint of what it means. Guys' opinion, where do you personally tell demons to go? And maybe what's your reasoning behind that? So the abyss. To the yeah, abyss, like, Jenny says. To the, to the abyss, man. They got to go to the pit, baby. That's where they got to go. I think all of us send them to the pit or the abyss. Is that right? Is there anywhere? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the be- Bible, it says that they hate, they hate, absolutely do not want to go there. So my thought is, we need to send your butts there. That's the place that you don't want to go. Um, I remember a pastor saying, don't send the demons to the abyss. This was the theology. He said, because they're going to go to the abyss and they're going to get more help and then they're going to be back. I can't find any scripture reference for <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. we got to stop making up stuff. They need to go to the yeah. abyss. And then I always say this. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you can teach me something, but I say, and do not return. This is ironic. (laughs) The reason why I say this, because immediately right after this, Daniel Adams says the demons are fearful because they know they will be tormented by principalities for failing their assignment. Where is that in scripture? Jenny just got done stating we need to quit making up stuff that's not in scripture. Well, there's nowhere in scripture and Isaiah refers to these verses. He refers to Luke 8:31, he refers to Romans 10:7, he references Revelation 17, Revelation 20, Revelation 9, and he the, he uses these as proof texts in order to say this is why we can send them to the abyss. But those passages say nothing about instructing us to tell demons to go to the abyss. Furthermore, the fact of saying 
you know, we need to quit making stuff up that's not in Scripture for one thing that doesn't tell us anywhere in there that we're to do this, that we have the authority to do this. And then for Adams to come around and just to say, well, the demons are fearful because they know they'll be tormented by principalities for failing their assignment. And that's why they don't go to, want to go to the abyss. That's not found in scripture. So that's, that's actually negating what they, they just agreed to that not to make stuff up. That's not in scripture. Luke eight thirty one was one of the first passages that Isaiah referred to. And this is the account that's taking place where Jesus heals a man with a demon. And this is the, the well-known passage that many people know of, of the, the man at the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, depending on what translation you're looking at and, and who's translated this in here about the name that's opposite of Galilee. Um, when Jesus steps out onto the land, this man meets him that's been living in the tombs and he's been cutting himself and not even the chains can hold him down. He has the legion living in him when Jesus Jesus asks him for there are many demons that had entered him. And it says in verse 31 that they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Well, who are they talking to here? They're talking to Jesus. This is the only time that we see an account in scripture where demons are talking to another individual and they are saying, do not cast us into the abyss. This is Jesus, who is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by the way. He is the one that will judge at the end of time, and he will condemn and throw the demons and the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan into the lake of fire as their final eternal judgment. This, has, this is a proof text that's being used to say that we have this ability. We do not have the authority to cast demons into the abyss. So with that, I want to read to you from gotquestions.org. I looked this up just to kind of help give us a little bit of perspective. And so when you type this in, that it simply means a deep hole, so deep that it seems bottomless or immeasurable. And the word is often used in modern context to describe the sea. Now, when you go in Luke 8, it says Jesus cast the legion of demons out of a man and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The abyss is obviously a place that the demons fear and try to avoid. And they also reference Revelation 9, which is where the fifth angel sounded his trumpet. And it says, I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Uh, Revelation eleven seven says, Now when the two witnesses had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, another uh, passage that Isaiah referenced but did not read. He said, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. So in all of these instances on gotquestions.org, it says, quote, the abyss is a place for the containment of evil spirits. Many Bible scholars believe that this is the same place referred to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 as, quote, hell, where some evil spirits are in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. The word hell here is a translation of the Greek Tartarus, which can be thought of as the deepest pit or the lowest part of Hades. And it says, 
is clear from scripture that God has ultimate power over all evil spirits. Some of the demons have been consigned to the abyss and held captive there, while others seem to be able to move more freely upon the earth. Ultimately, all evil spirits will be consigned to the lake of fire, along with all unbelievers. And we can find this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. So just a little suggestion there, anytime any, especially a fast talking minister like Isaiah, if someone references scripture and you're listening to this online, you need to pause it, get your Bible out and you need to read you any, it doesn't matter if they're slow talking, fast talking, whatever talking they need. If they mention scripture, you need to get your Bible out and you need to read for yourself and you need to read the context, read before, read after it, make sure that what you're being taught and told is factual. This is not factual. There is no scripture to back this up that we or anybody else has any authority other than God to cast demons into the abyss. You don't even see the apostles doing this. They did not do that. They just com- they commanded them to come out when they did that. They didn't command them to go anywhere except out of that person. Just please keep that in mind. And as Isaiah also said that this was his personal belief is that this is where demons were sent for judgment or the waiting place, if you will, to await judgment. I also found this, this comment interesting during this same question and answer period on this, this very subject. Again, when we're casting out demons, we want to take them out of circulation. When you get a fake $100 bill, you don't want to just put it back in your cashier drawer and then give it to the next person that comes through. The bank actually destroys counterfeit money. So we take the money out of circulation. So our goal is not getting the demons out of you so they can jump in your neighbor. The goal is getting the demons out of circulation, sending them to the abyss. And so they're no longer, there's no point in me casting a demon out of one person just so it jumps in another person. And if you think, and you're one of those pastors that are like, we don't want demons jumping out of one person to another person. That's not biblical at all. That's bad theology. So stop saying that because you're scaring everybody. That's right. Um, who keeps letting these demons out of the abyss? If they're throwing them into the abyss and they have all this authority and they're taking them out of circulation, then how are these demons getting back out again? Who's letting them out? And by what authority do they command them there? And who has the authority to command them to come out if they keep coming out of the abyss? You see how this is not biblical thinking. This is not biblical teaching. And this is bad doctrine. To give Isaiah credit, he does, he is correct on um, cultural things, on moral issues and such. But on this particular thing, he's not correct because this is not based on what scripture says. This is based on personal thoughts, personal opinion. And it sounds like bad doctrine and bad theology if we want to, if we want to talk about that and use his own words. I did want to also mention, too, here that um, near the end, they talked about other question and answers. They talked about the demons versus the Holy Spirit manifesting and how to know the difference in that. Again, that was based on personal experience, personal opinion, and was not rooted in Scripture. They talk about stubborn demons and the fact that demons do have legal rights or can have legal rights to indwell people. Again, this is teaching that has been perpetuated throughout the years. When you read deliverance ministry manuals and deliverance handbooks, deliverance books that are written, that there is this teaching perpetuated in that, but it's not rooted in scripture. And at the end of this Q&A, at the end, near the end of this live broadcast they did, there was a mass deliverance at the end of the live that was prayed, and there was a power of suggestion there, I would argue, when telling people that um, when they receive prayer that they're going to begin, if they have a demon, they're going to begin to yawn, they're going to be to vomit, they may have a headache that will release, um, that'll be temporary. So I'm going to play just a little bit of this so you can can hear what was said there. 
the soles of their feet right now. Holy Ghost, fire right now, you demonic spirit right now. Come out! Out right now! Ancestral spirit, out right now! Come out! Out! Come out in the name of Jesus. Demonic spirit afflicting in the dreams. You spiritual spouse, out right now. Out in the name of Jesus. Now stop right there because it just keeps going on with that, calling out different things. And near the end of it, they asked to sow um, to different ministries. So Isaiah did this call to say, don't dine and dash, but but calling them to sow to the different, different ministries. To be fair, not just to him, but he said to the other ministries, but at the same time, again, sowing into these ministries of this teaching that is not rooted in scripture. Now, I want to talk about the children's bread issue, because that's something that really does need to be addressed. I'm going to read these two accounts to you. The first one is in Matthew chapter 15, because if I'm going to pick at them for not using scripture, then I need to utilize scripture as well, because this is the final authority upon which we stand. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, holds the account of the faith of a Canaanite woman. So verse 21 says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, the other account that we find in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. So let's also read that one, and then let's talk about what this actually means, which has a far greater meaning than what you've probably been taught and what I was taught about deliverance or healing is the children's bread and misusing that scripture. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30 says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Now, what does this passage mean? We can take note first of who this woman was. She was Syrophoenician, Canaanite. Matthew and Mark talk about this, but she was a Gentile. She was not of the house of Israel. And he makes this clear in Matthew 15 that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And after this, he says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answers him and says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now to get a better understanding of what's going on, commentaries are typically helpful whenever you're doing a Bible study to try to gain a better idea. And of course, having a a better grasp of the Greek and the Hebrew, which I am, I don't know Greek and I don't know Hebrew, but 
at least the commentaries are helpful to us and we can glean from other people that have done far more in-depth Bible study than we have. So with that, let's take a look at a couple of commentaries and see what they have to say about Matthew 15. I have in front of me the Moody Bible Commentary, and in Matthew 15, for their area of here, for 22 through 28, it says, The Canaanite woman makes an unlikely heroine, as Canaanites were the indigenous people among almost displaced by the Hebrews and their perpetual enemies. How she addressed Jesus, however, sounded very Jewish and indicates well-rounded knowledge of his mission and power. Once again, the disciples show how callous they were, and Jesus seemed ready to dismiss her. When she became more insistent, he gave a further explanation in verse 26. The children's bread is probably a metaphor for the covenant blessings intended for the Jewish people, and dogs a reference to Gentiles as those outside of the covenant community of Israel. Her response in verse 27 indicated a surprising level of insight regarding the relationship of the Jewish people's covenant blessings and the benefits they provide for Gentiles. The salvation historical priority of Jesus was to reach the Jewish people, but as the Great Commission indicates, even Gentiles benefit from the Jewish Messiah. So we can see here, this is, this is, a, this is a beautiful picture of salvation also coming to the Gentiles. But Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 15 that he was called only to the, house, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But her being referenced as a little dog, which, again, when you look into this and, and look at the, con, the the references to this in the context, when the dog was referred to, there were some dogs that were wild roaming dogs that were not considered pets, where there are some that's, that um, make the point in their commentaries where he refers to her as a little dog, that these were pets that the Jewish people kept in their homes. So it shows the order. I think R.C. Sproul maybe talked about this, or it was on Ligonier I saw this, where it talked about that the little dog or the pet the family's pet dog would sit under the table and would glean or um, benefit from what the master had eaten at his table and the crumbs would fall on the floor. So it showed the order of who received the, the sustenance or the food. It was the people that lived in the house and then the pet received it. So, we can see here this this picture of what's going on, and ultimately this is pointing back to the the bread is pointing back to the covenant that was promised to Israel. Now let's take a look. Um, I also have MacArthur's commentary in front of me, so let's see what he has to say about Matthew chapter fifteen in these verses. He talks about the children's bread in verse 26. He says, The lost sheep of the house of Israel must be fed before the little dogs. Christ uses a word here that speaks of a family pet. His words with this woman are not to be understood or har- as harsh or unfeeling. In fact, he is tenderly drawing from her an expression of faith in verse 27. So we can see here again, he is acknowledging the, the similar things that I just told you a minute ago. I want to see what he says in Mark chapter 7 about that passage, that same account. So let's take a look at that for just a moment. He also talks about that he that uh, Jesus delivers a Gentile woman's daughter and that Jesus did not seek a public ministry in the area. It is likely he wanted time to rest from the pressure of the Jewish leaders and an opportunity to further prepare the disciples for his coming crucifixion and their ministry. The unclean spirit is known to be a demon. Uh, the Greek, a non-Jew in both language and religion. And being a Syrophoenician woman, this, the region of Phoenicia at that time was part of the province of Syria. He says Matthew fifteen twenty two adds that she was a descendant of the Canaanites. And the children's bread and throwing it to the little dogs, he says that verse 27 there in Mark 7, the illustration Jesus gave was in essence a test of the woman's faith. Jesus' first responsibility was to preach the gospel to the children of Israel. 
But that first also implied there would come a time when the Gentiles would receive God's blessings another time. And the reference to the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The children's bread refers to God's blessings offered to the Jews. This picture indicates that the little dogs, Gentiles, had a place in the household of God, but not the prominent one. And the diminutive form of little dogs suggests that this refers to dogs that were kept as pets. Jesus was referring to the Gentiles, but he did not use the derisive term the Jews usually employed for them that described mangy, vicious mongrels. I wanted to share those commentaries with you, and I encourage you to do your own Bible study on different areas like this, and be sure that you are having that you that you have a better grasp of the scriptures, and you're not just listening to someone rattle off verses without even opening the Bibles and expounding on them and making sure that what they're telling you is the truth. Anybody can make an error, but when someone is perpetuating an error and they're not willing to look at what the verses say, that's problematic. It's problematic for them and it's problematic for you because you're trusting that that person knows what they're talking about. And when they're referencing verses that have nothing to do with what is the teaching and the practices that are trying to be perpetuated currently, then that's problematic. So, Now that we have a little bit better grasp of what that is, that the deliverance is the children's bread, I also wanted to share another article that I found on gotquestions.org. I know I like going here, but it's a very simple um, website to go to. And a lot of times, not all, not all the times, but there's a lot of times that I do get the answers to the questions I'm looking for. So you may be on here and you may be saying, well, do you not believe in deliverance? Or does the Bible not talk about deliverance? Well, the Bible most certainly does talk about deliverance. And I believe God does deliver us. But I do not believe that Christians can have indwelling demons. The reason why I say that is because scripture does not support that. And the other thing too, that I think is really helpful for us to understand is that deliverance is defined as a rescue from bondage or danger. And that we see that deliverance took place in the Old Testament as well. And it, it's it's all the way back even to Exodus, when we see that the Israelites are subjected to slavery in Egypt, and Moses is sent by God to help deliver them out of Egypt, out of the bondages of, of slavery. Even then, we can see that that God is always the one who's the deliverer. He is the subject, and the people are the object. They are the ones in need of deliverance. We we have been in need of deliverance. We were rebellious against him. We were sinful. We were um, lost. We were doing. We were following our own way. We had strayed. We were not following what God said to do, and we needed deliverance. Deliverance from the wrath of God. That's the, the that's the just punishment for sin. And we can see that there is this temporal deliverance in the Old Testament. And uh, Got Questions talks about that this, is, that this serves as a symbolic representation of the spiritual deliverance from sin, which is available only through Christ. And that we have the, the greatest deliverance, and I've talked about this before, but the greatest deliverance that we have is from sin, from evil, from death, and from judgment that we deserve apart from Christ because of our rebellion against him. So we have been delivered. And and so I think it's really important that we understand that there is deliverance that and God, you know, God delivered his people in the Old Testament as a type and shadow of what was to come. He de- Christ delivers us and we also see that there are times that that God delivers us from perilous circumstances. That God delivers us from sickness sometimes. It doesn't mean that it's always promised in the atonement on this earth. We are promised that there'll be no more tears, there's no more sickness, no more death in heaven. 
but we're not promised on this side of heaven that we're going to always uh, live a life that we never have pain, we never have sickness, we never have trials, or never have hardship, or anything like that. We're not promised that. But God in His sovereign will does deliver us from calamity sometimes. He delivers us from um, a moment where we're faced in a, a perilous situation that we could face death. So yes, those things happen. Now, with some final thoughts on all of this, I wanted to present for, again, as always, for consideration and to offer some um, some loving pushback on this matter. The deliverance era did not begin on November 18th, November 19th or November 20th in Duluth, Georgia at the Forerunner Conference with all these deliverance ministers. The deliverance ministry actually began 2,000 years ago when Jesus condescended and came to earth to deliver us from the penalty of sin with the finished work on the cross. And as I've already said, we can even go back in the Old Testament and see that his deliverance is seen there in type and shadow, and it's also being foretold of that it's to come in, in him coming to earth as the Messiah. And Luke 4.18 is a beautiful passage that Jesus reads about himself, by the way. I've seen people try to attribute this passage to themselves, but this passage is attributed to Christ. Luke 4.18, when Jesus reads the scroll, the prophet Isaiah that was given to him, he unrolled the scroll in verse 17, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That scripture is about Christ and he is the one that sets the captives free. He is the one that brings deliverance. And so I would provide some gentle pushback um, on that to say, no, deliverance actually, the deliverance ministry began 2,000 years ago. And this whole prophetic rhetoric that the deliverance era began last month or with these deliverance ministers, it contradicts scripture. I would also consider such passages as Jude 8, for example, in case you've not looked at that before, but offer it for consideration. There's two passages in particular. Uh, Jude 8 warns of the false prophets that would come and the false teachers that are bringing false issue, false practices and false doctrine. In verse 8, it says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. It goes on to talk about verse 9 that when the, Mark, uh, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain at Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are strong words from Jude. It goes on to be even uh, equally strong as you go on to read it. But that's one passage. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 is another one. When it talks about, the again, the, the warning of the false prophets and the false teachers, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble at the, and they, as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. 
So a lot of um, commentaries, when you look this up and then study Bibles, they believe that the glorious ones that are being blasphemed are the, the fallen angels and that these false teachers and false prophets are actually blaspheming. They're rebuking these evil angels, these evil spirits, and they don't have the authority to do such things. So having considered those two passages, if what these individuals are doing agrees with this, then uh, with what Jude 8 and 2 Peter 2, 10 and 11 say, then, then that's concerning. I want you to ask yourself if the true gospel is being presented in these types of works that are being displayed, that are being discussed and demonstrated and, and uh, recollected in, the, in these different videos and, and different things that are being done. Is the true gospel, the true gospel being presented? which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with Scripture for our sins. Is that being preached? I listened to this entire Q&A. Not one time was the gospel presented. Not once. And there was a particular instance where they were talking about a certain type of um, lifestyle that people were living, and they began to rebuke the demons for that. That is a prime opportunity to minister the gospel. And the gospel was not presented. There was no call to repent. You're in rebellion against God. You're in sin against God. The wrath of God abides on you. You stand condemned already. But God loved so much that he sent his son to um, to save and to reconcile you. And the call to repent and believe, to turn from your sin, turn to Christ, trust in him for salvation alone, that you are saved by the grace of God through faith in him alone to save you and to cleanse you, to wash you from all unrighteousness, to have you justified before God the Father, to reconcile you and to give you the promise of eternal life. That was not stated anywhere in that in those three hours. And that concerns me because when you're making references and saying the full gospel, meaning that if you don't cast out demons, then you're not preaching the gospel, but yet you don't bother to preach the gospel for three hours on a Q&A about deliverance ministry, and you're saying that you're ministering the full gospel, that is concerning. That's concerning. And rather, when listening to this, and I'll just be frank, it seemed like it was a digital high-fiving of each other and being legends in their own minds. And one could gather that deliverance is a lucrative business. Now, I don't know the intents of their hearts. I'm not going to try to presume that. I'm going to tell you, though, that deliverance is a lucrative business. And there are people that write books, and they do this so that you will purchase their books because they know they do well. Um, they do very well. And deliverance, uh, you know, books are written, they're popularized, conferences are held, and they're sensationalized, and people are being led astray away from biblical dis- discipleship into these types of practices. And I would just encourage you with this, or maybe you know someone that needs to listen to this episode and to consider some of these things. You and I do not need a deliverance minister. We need Christ, and we need to get back to the Word of God rightly divided. So with that, I want to encourage you in the word of God. I think that is the best place for you to be encouraged. It's not you can, it's the best place is not for you to be encouraged by my personal experiences, by someone else's personal experiences or their personal opinions. The best place for us to be encouraged is through the word of God. 
So Galatians 1.4 tells us that um, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, uh, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. John reminded believers in 1 John 4.4 that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world when he talked about the Antichrist spirit that was going around and he's telling them to test the spirits. He reminded them and encouraged them in the Lord. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, beautiful passages that were encouraging to the believers in Colossae at that time and are encouraging to us. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been delivered, my friend. We have been delivered and set free by the power of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul tells the Thessalonians to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, the wrath of God. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. We are delivered from the power of sin. We will someday be delivered from the presence of sin. And you are not a captive to sin and the devil. If anything, Romans 8, 1 should encourage you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is all good news for us. This is, this is what we need to be meditating on and pondering on, is what Scripture has to say. Because Scripture is the final authority, and Scripture gets the final word, because it is God's word. It is him speaking through those that he designated to write his holy word. And the Holy Spirit inspired these people to write this word that is from God himself. We have been given faith as a gift from God. And we use this as a shield to quench the fiery darts of the enemy that Ephesians 6 talks about with the armor of God. And these include the temptations to sin that the enemy can try to bring us in order to drive separation away from God in our fellowship with him. We have been left the word of God as a sword, and we are to abide in his word and to have it written on our hearts. First John chapter two, verse 14, two more passages I want to take you to before we part ways today. The believers in first John chapter two, verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In first John chapter five, verses 19 and 20. Again, written to believers by John and is encouraging to us today. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So dear Christian, I want to remind you of something today. And I am passionate about this subject because I believe that it just leads people into more and more bondage. Your battle is from without. It is not from within. God is much stronger. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is far stronger than any demon. And it is an insult to what Christ did on the cross to tell people that are professing believers that put their faith and trust in Christ. You can still have demons come indwell you that you need to have cast out and that you're going to writhe around the floor and you're going to vomit and look like you're a, a pagan, that you're going to look like that you don't even belong to God in the manifestation that comes out of you. That is a low view of the Holy Spirit. I urge you 
to turn from these aberrant practices, only leading you into further bondage and legalism. And if I could be so bold as to say this, that are leading you into practices that are lining the pockets of people that are benefiting off of your biblical illiteracy. So I hope that you find this helpful. And I hope that you understand this is said with love and concern, not only for you, but for those that are teaching this. And I pray that they stop teaching this and that they realize and come back to scripture and come back to the truth of God's word and stop belittling it and berating those that are standing for the truth and standing for loving people enough to say, go back to God's word. What does the, what does the finished work of Christ on the cross say in his word? What does it mean? What is the power in, the, in what Christ did on the cross? The finished work. And be encouraged, be encouraged in this and stop listening to this type of teaching that is, is only perpetuating, again, more bondage and legalism. If you found this podcast helpful, you can feel free to uh, message me. You can email me at dawn at lovesubscribe.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review. And I would love to hear how this is blessing you, how it's helping you, encouraging you. I always enjoy getting those messages from others that are, are giving good feedback. And if you don't agree, it's okay. I'm willing to talk with those that don't even agree with me, and we can do it in a loving and respectful way. Until next time when we're on here, thanks again for joining me for this 100th episode. Be blessed today by the truth of God's word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.